We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week. Food flavors, fish faces, and China's car data collection. I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Kai, what happened in the future this week? Well, AI is happening again. So our first story is from The Atlantic, and it's titled The AI That Knows Exactly What You Want to Eat. Really? Uh, no. And that's what we're going to talk about. Subtitled, Can an App Lead to Better Tasting Food by Digitally Measuring Flavor? So the article does recognize that flavor comes together through the way we taste things, through the way we smell things. And it's not something that you can easily analyze, easily grasp. Unlike things like sounds, which you could measure with a microphone and you could have an objective measure for an objective level, the way we measure flavor relies on the experiences that people have and hence have been fairly difficult to understand and comprehend. So in that sense, taste and smell are probably the most subjective or inaccessible senses that we have. And we do not have a device that can capture the way in which we experience flavor in an easy measurement on a scale or in whatever form. As you say, much like we could do with visual perception or audio perception. And so as far as a digital measurement goes, there's only the recourse via the human experience, which then needs to be necessarily expressed in language. So the company Analytical Flavor Systems proposes a new app called Gastrograph. A fairly unfortunate name, but never mind. Well, it does aim to introduce a way to really reliably measure what we taste, reliably measure flavor. And the hope is that, as with everything else that we measure and we have data on, once we understand it, we can play around with it, we can control it and basically make the world a better place for everyone. Not before we throw in a little bit of AI, of course, which is the magic ingredient which will make all of this accessible. And so what the app does is, in the first instance, it allows people to express their flavor experience of a dish or type of food on a set of dimensions that is provided by the app, presented visually in the form of a spider graph, where you can indicate on a set of scales, for example, if the food is fruity, sugary, if it's wet, if there's spices present, if there's a floral taste. And then digging deeper into those different categories, you can describe what you are tasting in up to 600 dimensions. And so what the app actually does is it's translating a subjective experience into language categories. And the analysis that subsequently follows on the basis of this data is then a linguistic analysis. So presumably what happens is that the app collects a lot of these experiences where people indicate what type of food they are tasting, which is the input data for the algorithm, for the deep learning AI, 
what we call labeled data, which allows the algorithm to learn. And then as the article states, if someone is tasting something that they don't know what they are tasting, they can equally describe their experience in that way. And the app would then be able to deduce what kind of food or dish they are actually tasting. So, so far, the understanding of what this thing does or what the article describes it does. So just to make it clear, this is an app that is currently being used or tested by food companies, but it's an app that anyone can download and you can have your dessert and then enter your own data, which the app will then compare to its entire body of data. So it's a crowdsourcing approach. It relies on users to actually describe their experiences according to the categories and dimensions provided by the app, which are language categories. So according to the CEO of Analytical Flavor Systems, the AI can determine the flavors in the food even better than you, the person who has submitted the food review. And even more than that, it can notice flavors that you do not consciously perceive and that can be so important for a taste experience. And so he goes on to say the app is literally reading someone's mind, but then quickly corrects himself. Oh, thank God. Yeah, he corrects himself and he says, no, if we were reading their mind, they would have known they were tasting it. We're reading their subconscious And this is the point where we probably need to start calling bullshit. Yes. So, no, there is no mind reading going on. There is no reading of the subconscious going on, which is where it pays off to think a little bit more deeply about what this type of analysis actually does. So the app actually uses techniques from computational linguistics. What language researchers have tried to do previously is having large amounts of data, trying to find ways in which to group certain words or certain parts of text or certain descriptions and try to create models of meanings. How do certain words relate to other types of words? Additionally, the app can do operations with some of these words. And the example that's given in the article is operations such as if you have the word king minus the word man plus the word woman, it gives you the word queen which is a fairly simplistic understanding of language to begin with. And also of flavor. If you have a cracker, remove salt, add sugar. Yeah, it gives you what? Wheat Bix. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the assumption that this app makes is that we can express flavor in language so that there is a link between our experience of flavor and the way we express it in language. And that we can then make computational analysis, so reconfigure language, and then... Infer something about flavor. Exactly. Now, let's look into this because there's multiple problems. First of all, the makers of the app state as a problem of why the app is needed in the first place that people cannot explicitly pinpoint what they are tasting if they don't already know what they're eating. So they often don't have explicit knowledge of taste as such, of flavors. And the example here would be if you add a little bit of vanilla to a glass of milk, you will taste that it is sweeter and we will describe it as sweeter, but you wouldn't be necessarily able to pinpoint that it's actually vanilla that you're tasting in the drink. Yeah, but at the same time, they also claim that taste and the experience of taste is very subjective. Now, at the same time, they seem to say that the subjective expression of taste experience when aggregated, like all our experiences, somehow 
lands us in a world where we have an objective description of taste that we can then manipulate on the language level to make inferences back to our subjective experience of taste. And that to me, right, while it sounds like magic, is just bullshit because of, first of all, the complexity that we're dealing with. Think of all the various ingredients and food types and dishes and recipes and all of the kind of things that we could possibly eat that would serve as labels for the data. And then the way in which taste is actually very contextual. It depends on what you have just eaten before. We know that hormone levels change the way in which we experience taste and temperature. And we know contextual cues influence the way you experience food. There are a number of famous studies that look at our experience of wine. The wine tastes better if it's poured to you from a bottle that has an expensive label on it versus a bottle that has a generic shop label on it. And these experiments have been consistently replicated in which the way the food is packaged or arranged on a plate or served in a specific setting actually influences your subjective appreciation of how good that food or how good that drink actually is. On top of that, we know that some people do have more precise taste buds. They're better able to recognize and describe nuances in food. And on top of all of this, we also have the problem that people use language very differently, not only culturally, but across age groups, across social milieus. So not only do we have the sheer complexity of flavors and food types, varying abilities in the way in which people can taste and distinguish food, the contextual nature of flavor experience. We also have the variety in which we use language. And we know from our previous analysis of AI being used in different contexts that the types of machine learning algorithms that we're developing now actually thrive in fairly bounded context. So we've looked at deep learning algorithms that learn to play a game or learn to recognize patterns in images or learn to recognize faces. All of them require some sort of bounded context in which to make those inferences. And good data. And this is where the problem lies, because this app tries to solve the problem of subjective flavor experience by way of expressing subjective flavor experience in language, which does not create the kind of data that you could use to tackle this problem. If indeed subjective flavor experience is a problem to begin with, or is it not maybe what makes food and flavor so interesting that we can have all of these varying experiences. So let's take a look at why this app exists and where this type of analysis might actually make some sense. And here we want to say something in favor of gastrograph, because there are actually good places where you could use something like this. For instance, one of the examples in the article refers to gastrograph being a good way for food manufacturers to get a better understanding of the consistency of the product that they produce. So imagine a beer manufacturer or a coffee manufacturer where the quality of your product depends upon a certain process 
process, but where you would want to ensure a certain consistency in the flavor that you're producing, even though there are seasonal variations in the ingredients that go into your product. And here you would have tasters taste, let's say, the beer or the coffee every season and try to ensure that what you're getting out is a consistent product throughout the year or throughout the seasons. So if you are drawing a sharp boundary around the number of food groups or flavors that are in play, and you are using a test group of people who use the same kind of vocabulary and language, an app like that could certainly work to explore how new combinations of ingredients or new flavor combinations might lead to certain experiences without actually having to produce those products to begin with. So it might be a way to simulate the way in which ingredients could affect taste. And indeed, some of the customers that the company has at the moment are thus not only looking to maintain the flavor of their product, but also to figure out how to make incremental changes to the product lines that they have now to improve their products or to find new markets. So I find this interesting, right? It's a wicked problem. And I think it's worthwhile exploring to what extent we can express flavor in language and what we can do with this type of analysis. But I just want to point out that some of the claims that the article makes, such as predicting people's subconscious preferences or poking around in the thoughts that are secret even from ourselves in order to manipulate or hijack our mental processes to entice us into eating certain foods, you know, is certainly not on the cards. So once again, here's an article which starts with an interesting problem, goes to an AI analysis which employs the kind of techniques that we've previously discussed and ends up with claims that vastly overstate what these technologies can possibly do. But let's move on to our next article, which actually does live up to the claims that it has around artificial intelligence. So absolutely, in stark contrast to this article, here is an application of this technology where it matters and where it actually works. And I absolutely love this article. It comes from Computer World and it's titled The Northern Territory Government Using Artificial Intelligence to Monitor Fish Stocks While Avoiding Crocs. So we're talking the what we call the top end of Australia, one of the most beautiful parts of the world with some of the most interesting water landscapes in the world, beaches, but also rivers with just a little catch. Yes, maybe not so little. So you've got sharks, you've got crocs, which is why the Department of Primary Industry and Resources, together with, of all people, Microsoft, launched facial recognition for fish. So the problem being that if you're a scientist and you are researching the ecology of the ocean of the northern end of Australia or indeed the invasion of foreign species into the rivers of the national parks around Darwin, you do not necessarily want to put on your suit and dive because sharks and crocs... Because sharks, crocs and jellyfish. Exactly. So what you'd rather do is you submerge a camera, you record video, and then you go and categorize and count the fish that swim past your lens. So your two options if you are trying to monitor fish stocks are either 
as the article puts it, potentially deadly, go down and count the fish and, you know, face the sharks and the crocs and the jellyfish, or are deadeningly dull, as the article puts it, in which case you have people who have a PhD sitting in front of a computer screen and basically going fish, not fish, fish, not fish, 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 fish. For hours, days, weeks. Now, if only there was a technology that could help with that kind of problem. And this is where artificial intelligence comes in. And the department partnered with Microsoft to try to develop a machine learning algorithm that would be an alternative to the fish-no-fish problem. The solution that they developed based on hundreds and thousands of hours of footage that this engine was fed was that the AI system is now able to identify a fish in a video with 95 to 99% accuracy. And that's really amazing, considering that the waters in many of these areas are very green and murky, there are huge tides, there's very low visibility, and the fact that the fish do not sit like in a passport photo, face the camera and then turn to the side and then turn to the other side, but rather swim around in a fairly disorganized and haphazard manner. So the algorithm has to actually be able to identify fish from every single angle, every position in different conditions of lighting, something that is really not that easy a task to do. And of course, you do not just want fish, no fish. You want to tell apart Nemo from Dory. You want to tell apart different species and then count them because that's the whole point of the exercise. So the way you do this is you have scientists train the algorithm by doing the fish-no-fish exercise for a while, and then you're in a position to actually automate that. So face recognition for fish. So why should fish have it any better than us, right? Being under constant surveillance from CCTV cameras in public spaces. And this is, of course, not just a fight for equality for fish. Remember a while back we talked about the Go-Go chicken program in China that was doing facial recognition for chickens? There are also programs looking at koalas and sharks and so on. And Microsoft is not the only company doing this. So before we move forward, we must mention that there is similar work being undertaken by scientists from CSIRO and Data61. And of course, the fish face concept, which won the popular vote for Google's Australia Impact Challenge a couple of years ago that was using facial recognition technology to look for a number of species of fish at sea. But the one thing we want to mention about this project that Microsoft has going on is that surprisingly, the entire solution is available open source on GitHub. So this is something that can be used anywhere and by anyone and be adapted for any specific needs. And in this article, the author mentions one such application, which could be to actually do on-the-fly identification of catches on trawlers, on commercial fishing vessels. Currently, those sorts of things are being done simply by weight when the fishing vessel comes back to port. Using this sort of technology, you could do it as the fish is being caught and looking at the specific species of fish that are being caught rather than just analyzing things by weight. And the issue here is, of course, reducing the number of bycatch fish that shouldn't end up in the nets, which can be minimized by picking the area in which fishing is done. And so you could mandate the installation of such cameras and algorithms on fishing trawlers in order to 
monitor and regulate better the way in which fishing is done to reduce the impact on the environment. And this, of course, comes at the time where discussions about fishery depletion and fisheries collapse is very much at the forefront of global conversations. And especially in Australia, there are warnings that the Australian commercial fish population could drop by a third in over 10 years. So finding this sort of solutions and applications for AI is actually very, very timely. Or you could, of course, just install this technology in your home aquarium to keep taps on your own little fish population at home. Okay, so it's time for our short stories. Future Bites. My Future Bite comes from Axios, and the article is titled Electric Vehicles in China Send Real-Time Data to Government. And what the article mentions is that there are more than 200 manufacturers selling electric vehicles, and this include big names like Tesla and BMW and Ford, Daimler, Nissan, Mitsubishi, who transmit information, things like location, or who transmit a number of data, things like the location of the vehicle and speed and so on, to Chinese government-backed monitoring centers. And this is, the article reports, quite often done without the knowledge of the car owners. And let's make it clear that these car manufacturers are actually complying with local legislation, local laws, which apply to all alternative energy vehicles. So this is really interesting. There's currently more than 220,000 vehicles on the road. And all of this data, geolocation, speed, but also engine telemetrics and data about the car itself, the battery, the charging levels, and all of this is transmitted and then collated in real time in what is called the Shanghai Electric Vehicle Public Data Collection Monitoring and Research Center. That's a mouthful. Yes, and they have a real-time map where they can see where all electric cars are, what their charging levels are, and can then use this for what? What most articles reporting on this news have highlighted was the surveillance angles. And everybody said that, well, this just adds to the rich numbers of ways in which the Chinese government surveils its population. And you can't blame the media, given all the recent news about facial recognition in public spaces and the way in which China does indeed use this data to keep tabs on their population and to identify criminals, apprehend people that are wanted. But there are also a couple of articles which report on an interview with Ding Zhua, who's the deputy director of the Shanghai Center, who says that the center is actually not designed to facilitate state surveillance, though he admits that the data can be shared with police or prosecutors' courts if a formal request is made. And he says quite facetiously that state authorities have many more other ways to actually monitor people. And this is also only a very small subset of the population. So what is this data likely good for? Where the interesting value of this data lies is actually in the ability of local governments or national governments to use that data to better improve, for instance, city planning. If you're looking to use that kind of data, for instance, to optimize traffic, if you're using that kind of data to actually build a network for electric vehicles and to improve the adoption of electric vehicles to try to supplement other types of information that you might have about how people move around, how they use private versus public transport. You can view the types of data that they're obtaining from these electric vehicles in a whole new light. 
And let's not forget that China has plans to electrify most of its fleet in the coming years. They're making a very big push in light of climate change and pollution in cities. And we've spoke previously about the electric buses in China, which have more than pretty much any other place in the world. We'll include the link in the show notes. So as these cars come online in China, they have the ability very early on to plan the location of charging stations, to learn more about the usage of these cars, and therefore to plan in a fairly top-down way the infrastructure and rollout of this technology in ways that are inaccessible to authorities in the West, arguably. And there is also a second dimension to this type of data in China, which is the fact that this kind of large-scale data can be used to train better AI, better machine learning algorithms, where the Chinese have an advantage compared to places like the European Union or the US or even Australia is in the fact that the government collects this data and then also shares this data with both state-owned and private organization in a push to rapidly improve the AI that they develop. Whilst in the US or in the European Union, there are increasing barriers set up to either protect the privacy of citizens and their data or barriers that private companies set up to protect the data that they collect. In China, there is much more significant effort to leverage the data that the government collects in private-public collaborations. And finally, here's an angle which I haven't seen in any of the articles on the topic, and that is that Chinese authorities collect all of these data from cars from all kinds of manufacturers, chiefly premium Western brands such as Tesla, Volkswagen, BMW, Daimler, and so forth, in order to learn about the performance of electric vehicles. And who is to say that this data is not being shared with the state-owned car manufacturers who are ramping up their production and development of their own electric cars? So definitely something to keep an eye on. But we have time for one last future bite. What's your short story of the week? Very short, literally, because this is just a note from Engadget. Google's call screening transcripts roll out to Pixel owners. So those owners of a Google Pixel 3 smartphone now have access to Google Assistant who can screen incoming calls where the caller is connected to the Google Assistant AI synthetic voice. And by synthetic voice, we mean the Google duplex assistant that we featured previously on the podcast. Here's a little clip to remind you of what that sounds like. Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. As you can see, it's virtually indistinguishable from a human voice, and they will now be your private assistant. And so the caller has to put up with this artificial voice, leave a message, and then this message and the interaction is accessible as a written transcript, and the owner of the phone can then decide whether or not to follow up with the caller. So Megan, if Kai calls, we can basically let the assistant pick up. Oh, hang on, neither of us have a Google Pixel phone, but that's okay. We could get one and then decide whether we want to return Kai's call or not. Only time will tell how comfortable or annoyed indeed people will be when they are frequently talking to, you know, artificial Google rather than real Sandra. But how would you even know if it spoke with my voice? That's all we have time for today. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden hoses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au. So why should fish it? Sh- so why should fish? So why should fish? Ah! So, yes. <laughs> Try again. Face face recognition or facial fish fish fishes facial fish, recognition fish. for fish? fish 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 faces. Can you say fish fish facial fish facial recognition fish face fish face.